1: It's the California Report Magazine. I'm Sasha Coca. This week, we're headed to the Sierra foothills to celebrate a Jewish holiday that honors the trees with a community that's been around since the gold rush. It really
2: connects the cyclical nature of life along with the agricultural world. It has turned out to be one of my new favorite holidays.
1: But first, what it's like to grow up queer in a farm labor camp on the Central Coast.
3: Olga goes to the first person. It's Sylvie. She cuts off a little piece of donut between two fingers, holds it next to Sylvie's mouth, and says, Body of Christ. Sylvie says, Amen. Stop, says Caesar. Everybody knows girls can't be no priests, and you can't pretend to do Holy Communion, man. That's blasphemy.
1: That's author Jaime Cortez reading Jesus Donut from his new book of short stories called Gordo.
3: Olga don't care. She puts the little piece of donut on Sylvie's tongue. Sylvie closes her mouth and kneels there real quiet with a little smile on her face. Caesar points a finger at Olga's face and shouts, "I'm not gonna do no blasphemy for no donut." Caesar looks at me and says, Come on, Gordo, let's get out of here. He walks away, and in a few steps, he looks back and sees me on my knees. Are you coming with me, Gordo? He asks me. I will, I say, as soon as I get some donut. Caesar looks at me, and I think I'm in trouble. You know what, man? says Caesar, if you stay here, you can't hang around with me no more. Oh man, this is serious. I want to follow him around 50%, but I want a donor like 90%, so I stay.
1: The collection is set on the Central Coast in the farmworker labor camps where Jaime Cortez grew up, near Watsonville and San Juan Bautista. By the time he was 10, he was a veteran of the annual Garlic and Potato harvests, where he and his sister worked as kids in the fields. This book, which he says is semi-autobiographical, is a journey about queer self-discovery and about the complex identities that don't fit the usual stereotypes of Steinbeck country. There's also a lot of humor in these stories. Jaime Cortez is also a well-established visual artist, and he joins us now from his home near Watsonville to talk more about Gordo and to share some passages from the book. Hi there, Jaime.
3: Hello, and thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be on The California Report.
1: Let's talk a little bit about your childhood and and where you grew up. What was it like to grow up in a farmworker camp and and to be a queer kid in one of those camps?
3: Of course, when you're a little kid, you only know what you know uh, about where you grow up. So for me, growing up in a farm worker camp was the perfectly normal experience. I didn't realize that that was uh, in any ways kind of unusual or out of the norm until I began attending school. And I saw that, oh, okay, most kids don't live like this. Other people have indoor plumbing when they go to the toilet. Uh, Other people have telephones in their house. Uh, As far as the queer piece of it, I, I, one of the things that's that I was really thinking a lot about as I wrote the book was what it means to be a, a queer kid, but to not have language for that yet, to not understand what that means. And so the way uh, I experienced it as a small child was just I had feelings, I had attractions, I had certain fascinations with other boys in school, uh, but I didn't have a name for what was happening yet Uh As I moved further through elementary school, you know, I I quickly learned that queer was a bad thing. But in the age that the main character, Gordo, is in, who is uh, my avatar, basically, uh, that boy, in in many ways, uh, he doesn't have language or a a framework quite yet. He just has this dawning understanding that uh, being different can be really perilous.
1: Was Gordo your childhood nickname?
3: That is one of many things that I was called. I I cycled through many nicknames as a kid from my parents because my dad was very big on nicknames. Depending on what the nickname is, (laughs) it can be something that's actually kind of, um, you know, like to be called gordo. That means you're, that's basically saying you're a fat kid. And as uh, for me as a little kid, being fat was like something I found really embarrassing because it was, it made me, again, it's something that made me different. Uh, and so I had, you know, some shame around that body shame. Being called gordo was was you know was certainly something that added to that, like that anxiety about uh, my appearance. The nicknames would go often from very, uh, very obvious physical traits. And so, uh, if your hair was curly, it would be chino, uh, curly hair. Uh, if you are skinny, you'll be flaco. If you were fair skinned, you would be huero. So, so nicknames were rampant. Uh, and they were there was a lot of affection and intimacy built into them, and there could also be a kind of awkwardness and embarrassment and shame built into them. It just depends.
1: You have such great nicknames in this book. I mean, there are characters like Cookie. My favorite is Head and Shoulders.
3: Oh, Head and Shoulders. <laughs> That was an actual nickname uh, of a man who worked in the in the labor camp who had no visible visible neck. Basically, his head <laughs> his head just kind of sat on his shoulder, so his nickname became "Head and Shoulders." When you leave a grapefruit on a countertop for a couple of weeks. The membranes and fruity ligaments that hold together that nice, rounded shape slowly weaken. Gravity insinuates itself, and the citrus's bottom begins a relentless downward migration. The underside spreads and takes on the flatness of the counter while the top thins out. That defeated grapefruit shape was precisely the shape of Primitivo Doblado's head. How does he have the luck to get hired? I'll tell you how my Nana Lupita would explain. In his wallet, Primi carries hairs from the butt of Satan himself. The luck of the devil is with him. He's protected. No matter how he works, smells, or drinks, he'll keep getting hired.
1: You know, this book explores a lot with Gordo's character about toxic masculinity and machismo and, you know, what it means to not fit those expectations. One of the stories that really speaks to me is where Gordo's dad wants to have him start boxing and buys him boxing gloves and this Lucha Libre mask and, you know, wants him to start jumping rope. You want to just tell us a little bit about that uh, that dynamic between Gordo and his dad?
3: Yeah, most of these stories are overwhelmingly based in real things that happened. Uh, My father uh, bought me boxing gear. I pick a spot in front of the house and I begin jumping rope. My pa looks pretty excited when he sees me jump. My dog Lobo comes running to see what's going on. Caramba, gordo. You got good reflexes, mijo. Good feet, he says. I never seen my father so happy before. And I start to jump faster and faster. And when the rope hits the ground, little rocks and dust pop right up. My papi's watching me. And he's laughing. He's so excited. He even jumps up and down a few times. Lobo's excited, too. His tail is wagging, and he starts barking. I start to sing my favorite jump rope song that I learned from Sylvie. I'm a little princess dressed in blue. Here are the things I like to do. Salute to the captain. Bow to the queen. Turn my back on the submarine. I can do the tap dance. I can do the splits. Don't! He yells. I stop. Don't what, I ask? Don't sing that song. I'm breathing hard from jumping, but I'm also thinking hard. I look at his face. If the next thing I say is the wrong thing, I'm gonna get hit. Should I sing a different song, I ask? No, hijo, no singing. All you do is jump and count, jump and count, okay? Every day you're training, you try to jump a little bit more. Okay, I say, I'll count. You know, looking back on that gesture of his to buy me that boxing gear, I I really felt a lot of, of compassion for my father in that moment because he lost his father when he was a very small child and had to go out and and work in the world to support the family. From the time he was four or five years old, he was out selling newspapers by himself in Mexicali. He experienced, you know, a lot of the need to survive and to fight, to physically fight. And so the way he understood the world was one where that possibility of physical combat was always present, and that risk of it was always present. And so if you're going to take care of your son, you need to have him be prepared for that. And so that was, I think... You know, the drive behind that. Because I think he looked at me and I was this kind of quiet, artistic, uh, kind of shy kid. And he was thinking, I got to toughen this kid up. So he, he bought this boxing gear. And of course, what, when you do that, there's a tragic comic element to that because. It really showed like the complete inability that parents sometimes have, the complete inability to just really see their child for who they are, as opposed to seeing them for who you want them to be. It could not have been a less appropriate gift in some ways because this child had no combativeness in him. And, of course, the kid in his queerness, he's unpacking all this boxing and wrestling gear. And the thing that really excites him is the jump rope because he's a sissy boy and he likes jumping rope. (laughs) And so it was this complete thwarting of the, the intention of the gift. Raimundo the Queer's great gift and burden was to look any woman in the face and envision the perfect hairdo for her. The route to maximum beauty always seemed clear to him, a luminous path that glowed as if marked in reflective highway paint. When asked, he told his clients the truth and pointed the way to the Via Bella, but not everyone was ready to walk that narrow path. Sadly, they could not imagine the glories of what he saw for them, the haircut that soared beyond fashion and even taste to hover in the rarefied realm of eleganza. None of this could they see on their march towards the unholy mirage of their preferred haircut. Raimundo always gave his clients what they asked for, But each time they declined his offer of eleganza, they unknowingly pricked his heart. Like all prophets, he suffered horribly.
1: You've also got a lot of humor in these stories. I mean, there's a lot of, of funny stuff and moments of levity. Why is humor important to you?
3: I grew up with funny people. Mm-hmm. My, my parents were funny. My grandparents were funny. It was a survival mechanism to survive the rigors and really the horrors sometime of life is to be able to, to deploy that gallows humor uh, to, to kind of step back, take a breath, and, and just laugh. If for no other reason than because you made it through and you're still alive. So that was one thing. I think the other thing that uh, that is important for me is that without the humor, I think my stories could easily sink into the realm of the abject—just uh, the poverty, just the violence, just the pain, just the fear. If I did not have the humor to leaven it, it would become a kind of ab- abject experience. And I don't think of uh, of my childhood. For all of its rigors, I don't think of it as abject. I just think of it as full. It's just it was it was just the fullness of life.
1: Jaime Cortez, thank you so much for joining us.
3: And thank you so much for inviting me and for your thoughtful questions. I appreciate it.
1: Jaime's book of short stories is called Gordo. This weekend marks the Jewish holiday, Tubi Shvat. It's a time to gather around food and honor trees and the harvest. For her series, California Foodways, reporter Lisa Morehouse has been visiting the motherlode Jewish community in rural Tuolumne County. She first met up with them back in February 2020 to record their Tubi Shvat celebration. Nobody knew back then that just weeks later, the pandemic would stop most in-person gatherings like these and create the kinds of tensions that so many communities are dealing with these days.
4: Listen to this recording I made almost two years ago. Doesn't it sound so innocent? Twenty-five people meeting at a house in the town of Sonora, no masks, no tests, People hugging without hesitation.
5: There's more room for people to sit. Please come on in and be part of the community.
4: It takes a few nudges from Rabbi Andra Greenwald to get them to stop catching up and settle in. There's
5: places over there. Good morning and and welcome to our Tu celebration. Thank you for being here to celebrate this exciting birthday, the birthday of trees. It's like a Jewish arbor day. We pay homage to trees to ensure that there will be forests for our children and for our grandchildren. And I finally have a grandson, so the trees will be there for him. But I'm not proud or anything. At valley? <laughs> The closest
4: synagogues are in Stockton and Modesto, over an hour away. So more than 30 years ago, a few families nearby organized the Motherlode Jewish Community. Now membership includes more than 100 people from four counties. Rabbi Andra comes from Modesto for some holidays and services.
5: And it's been said that the act of planting a tree is in and of itself an act of faith. We never really know, do we, whether we'll have sun or rain we just have
4: faith. Rabbi Andre explains that they'll celebrate by holding a type of service, a Seder, that includes eating fruits and nuts indigenous to the Holy Land.
5: In Deuteronomy, we read, For Adonai, your God, is bringing you into a good land.
4: And everyone land prepares plates water, with nuts and crackers, and olives and pomegranate, and olives and pomegranate and seeds, and glasses with wine or grape juice.
5: A land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates. A land of olive trees and honey, a land wherein you shall eat without scarceness. You shall not lack anything in it.
6: Okay, we're starting with white.
5: I'm liking to the shot.
4: One of the people pouring drinks is Jo Lynn Miller. She moved to the county nearly 10 years ago and went to the annual meeting, a pool party, pretty soon afterwards.
2: And they just, just adopted me into their group, into their family very
4: quickly. She started attending monthly gatherings. Jolynn grew up in Southern California, Jewish by family tradition. Jew-ish, she says. But here she's become more connected to Judaism. Today's a good example. Before the Motherlowe Jewish community, she'd never celebrated Tu B'Shvat.
2: It's not a holiday that secular Jews, at least that I knew, celebrated.
4: Because JoLynn works in agriculture with kids and 4-H.
2: It really, for me, connects just the, the cyclical nature of life um, along with the Jewish calendar, along with the agricultural world. It, it has turned out to be one of my new kind of favorite holidays.
3: Baruch <speaking in Spanish>
5: Our first fruits, we're going to taste either walnuts, almonds, or both. We eat fruit that is hard on the outside and softer on the inside, symbolizing the protection that the earth provides for each of us. And it also reminds us to nourish the strength and the healing powers of our own bodies. And afterwards,
6: the members of the Motherlow Jewish community do what they always do, have a potluck. People do obsess a little bit about food. Do you have enough? Is there enough, is it gonna be enough food? That's Gott's lore. She says there's always way too much, but that
4: tracks when she's on the phone with her mom in Israel. She's like, I can tell you're not eating really well, like on the phone, it's crazy. On a serious note, Gott says she thinks this concern is tied to survival.
6: You know, our people have been through uh, a lot of persecution, hunger, that kind of thing from many generations ago, but it carries down, so.
4: Got moved to Sonora from the Bay Area, where there's a much larger Jewish community. But Jews have been here since the gold rush. Slide in from here. I'm at the gate of a 170-year-old cemetery on a quiet block next to the sheriff's station. I'm Pat Perry, the historian for the city of Sonora.
0: We're down here a little ways.
4: Pat's showing me around the Pioneer Jewish Cemetery. There's a five-foot-tall rock wall and towering cypress trees and gravestones honoring the Mach family and the bears. Pat says the first Jewish people arrived here in 1849.
1: Most of them at that time were single men.
4: Fleeing persecution and restrictions in Germany, France, Poland, and later Russia.
1: A lot of them came, like, to New York first, hearing of the gold rush. Of course, they came to California.
4: Most came to be merchants rather than miners, a community of over 100 people developed in Tuolumne County. For Jolyn Miller, this cemetery provides a link between the Jewish communities of the gold rush and today.
2: On occasion, I've um, gone by myself and just sat in the Jewish cemetery and just kind of soaked it up or read the headstones. And it's like a very much connecting to the place and to, to my heritage, just sitting there. It's where she went after her dad died. There's a connection that I can't explain. You guys have for planting a tree?
4: Back at the Tibi shot gathering, everyone bundles up to go outside in the cold to plant a cherry tree.
6: Do you want help Andy? No, thank you. Thank you. From,
4: I don't remember all the words. One woman remembers a song about the holiday.
5: For every fruit and every tree, Tubishvat is here, the Jewish Arbor Day.
4: And that inspires others to
6: sing.
4: And in this moment, I'm seeing what makes this group
6: in the foothills special. Here's Scott, the woman who moved here from the Bay Area. And I really like the diversity and the freedom. There are younger people and older folks. Political
4: conservatives, liberals.
6: Also, there are people that are very observant and people that are not at all. Submarine Jews who surface at Passover and the Jewish New Year. There's a lot of interfaith couples. It feels like we cherish our time together, even though we're all very different. But it feels like they're kind of my gang, my people.
4: That was almost two years ago. So I decided to go back and check in on the motherlode Jewish community. I find that like with so many families and groups across California and the country, the COVID pandemic has tested their connection. I meet Jillian Miller at her home where I'm greeted by chickens.
2: We have goats down there. We have a horse and a donkey.
4: Oh, sorry. <coughs> Hi, baby. And a Chihuahua named Carmen. The last time we saw each other at the Tubi-Schvat Seder was the group's last in-person gathering.
2: We had no clue what was going to happen just a month later, huh? I, um, I'm sad. I think I'm going to cry.
4: They've been on Zoom ever since, despite the poor internet connectivity in some of this area and the steep learning curve for some of the older members. Zoom gatherings actually had a surprising benefit for Jolynn, who fell in love early in the pandemic. My boyfriend is religious and he's Christian. Getting to know each other meant getting to know those differences.
2: In a time when I never would have driven an hour to go to synagogue in Stockton or Modesto, we, for months and months, every Friday would do Shabbat services virtually. And then on Sunday, we would do church services. For somebody who has been Jewish all my life, this was the most regular I'd ever been in services.
4: But comparing Zoom with in-person gatherings?
2: <sighs> we try, it's not the same. We try to add a few like 15 minutes before the quote unquote program starts for schmoozing.
4: They added a book club and for Hanukkah? We
2: tried to play some games. We tried to do, you know, a a scavenger hunt.
4: Other religious and civic groups have met in person at different stages of the pandemic. The Motherlode Jewish community has stayed on Zoom. They have a lot of older members and people who are immunocompromised. Some members rush to get vaccines and boosters, and a number have chosen not to be vaccinated. And that's really common for this area. About 50% of Tuolumne County residents are fully vaccinated, compared with over 70% of Californians. So with members not all agreeing on COVID, will the group be able to retain its family-like feel? Jolyn Miller. I'm scared for the unknown
2: because it is a family. How do we move forward trying to be respectful of everybody, knowing that the way that this has all turned out is so polarizing?
6: Yes, you are her, You made it. I made it. The chickens. Hey, chicks. It's okay,
4: chicks. When I get to Gott's house, she feeds her chickens. She's been showing up to Zoom functions and says she's learned something from remote holidays, like for Passover.
6: In the past, I'd be like, well, I'll buy a box of matzahs and I'm good. This time I kind of had to be responsible. I made my own chicken soup. So that was really cool. I had to kind of grow up and not expect the community to feed me and do all this stuff.
4: But for a while now, she's wanted the motherlow Jewish community to start meeting in person and not just stay on Zoom. I think
6: people have just, I think it's fear, I'll be honest with you. People are concerned. They feel very vulnerable. And I get that. I totally get that. I'm not trying to minimize that. Some of us have been frustrated, like, okay, it's time. Let's do it. She's on the board, but was outvoted about in-person meetings. So some of us have met, but it hasn't been official. So that part, it's a little tricky. I don't like to being divided. We're already divided by different things, but and we still love each other. But the pandemic stirred up emotions, including hers. At the beginning, I was very confrontational and angry about certain things and blaming and judgmental. And then I really got that none of us, I think, are purposely trying to hurt someone else. We're not going to agree on all that. But I hope that we can forgive each other, right?
4: Maybe it would do us all good to think about something Rabbi Andra said at the Tubi Shabbat gathering nearly two years ago.
5: We are, each of us, rooted as are the trees. But the question we might want to keep in the back or the forefront of our minds is, how far is each of us willing to stretch our own limbs so that we can be the very best that we can be? It's so something that we'll think about as we celebrate, eat, and plant. For this year's To Be holiday,
4: members of the Motherlode Jewish community will be meeting remotely, pouring their own wine and juice, eating fruits and nuts loaded with symbolism from their own homes, together, apart. For the California Report, I'm Lisa Morehouse in Sonora.
1: And that's it for the California Report magazine for this week. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our senior editor is Victoria Mal-Leon. Suzy Racho is our producer, director, and our sound engineer is Brendan Willard. Our team also includes Amanda Font and our new intern, Izzy Bloom. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories.